Well, if you're able, I would again ask you to rise to your feet as we read, as we read God's Word together from Matthew 6 and Luke 6. Hear the reading of God's Word. This, from starting in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is, in se- who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you have forgiven others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And we jump over to Luke chapter 6. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spur your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do give you thanks for your word and for the truth that we find in it. We pray now that you would reveal that truth to us. Guide my words and carry them to the hearts and the lives of those gathered here on this day. Watch over your word, guide it, protect it, and use it to shape these people. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for who you are and what you've accomplished in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What are some of your family traditions? Can you think of some? Just, just take a moment here and think of what are some of the things that you think of as your family traditions? Good or bad, maybe we could say. For example, in our family, we, we go bowling on Christmas Eve, and it's been something that we've done for many years. There are times when we haven't always done that, but for the most part, this is one of our traditions. We go bowling, and then we go to church, we out to, out to dinner to church, and then we come back, and we open up a present, and that present usually is pajamas of some sort, and that's our Christmas Eve kind of tradition. What is your family tradition? What are some of the things that you do? Another example that we do is that when someone's birthday, the night before their birthday, when they go to bed, um, some people in the family will decorate the house and they will put, will put banners up or streamers, happy birthday signs, so that when the person wakes up the next day, there's some festivity and there's some fun. It used to be a lot more when the kids were small, but there still is a little bit of celebration, even for old guys like me, of just, hey, it's a happy day. It's a day to celebrate you. What are your family traditions? Can you think of some of them? Or maybe we could take the question one step further and ask, what are some of the defining characteristics of your family? What makes your family your family? 
What makes the Arkhamas the Arkhamas? What makes your family your family? How are you different than other families? How are you the same? Or another way to look at the same scenario is to ask this question or to investigate a little bit further of what makes one country different from another? What are the cultures, the foods, the languages, the traditions? For example, when you go into Mexico, you know that you're in Mexico, not just because you went through border patrol, but you know that you're in a different country. There's different sights, there's different smells, there's different sounds, there's different foods. The people are different, not better, not worse, but there's definitely a difference between the people that are in the United States and the people that are in Mexico. There's difference between here and Canada for the same reasons. How do we almost immediately know that we're in a different country or that we can recognize someone from a different country? It's pretty easy, I would think, to recognize perhaps someone from, from Italy or France. Maybe hard to distinguish between Austria and like Germany, but if you live there, you would even know. But even in Asia, they have the ability to differentiate between all of these, all of these different countries, and they just know and there's something different about the culture, the people, the languages, the food, all of this. We just inherently know. And it fascinates me how, that, that how we're able to, dis, to determine and decipher quickly, hey, this is a different type of place. Not better, not worse, but just something different than what I know. There are unique and special things about being an American or Moroccan or Ukrainian or Russian. What does this have to do with the Lord's Prayer? What do these questions have anything to do with the Lord's Prayer. This morning we're looking at the petition that Jesus teaches us to pray that says, may your kingdom come. Whether it's the kingdom of your family or the kingdom of another country, we understand there are different characteristics, different qualities, different customs, different cultures about these kingdoms that make each of them unique, special, wonderful, different, joyful, The same thing then is true about the kingdom of God. Do we quickly recognize the citizen of the kingdom of God? Can we decipher as easily as we can between someone from England versus Mexico or whatever the countries may be? Are we able to determine, to decipher what those things are? So what is unique What is a defining characteristic about the kingdom of God? What makes that kingdom different and separate? What are the cultures, the customs, the languages, the culture that makes that kind of kingdom differently? Or are we even able to recognize the kingdom when we see it? If when we go into that border of the kingdom of God, do we recognize, oh, this is something different. This is something really special or wonderful. So this morning, this is what I want to look at with you all this morning want to look at the kingdom of God and see, indeed, what are the characteristics, the cultures, the people, and then perhaps even ask a challenging question near the end of our time together. But first, it's important to understand what a kingdom is. And yes, this may be a very elementary and fundamental task before us, but what is a kingdom? Again, with the amazing research skills that I have, Google, 
you can go to dictionary.com and you can find a definition for kingdom. And essentially, it is, is really easy to say it's defined as the region under the reign of a king or a queen. Pretty straightforward. A kingdom is the borders of a king or a queen. And actually, dictionary.com, the second definition is this. The spiritual reign or authority of God. Hmm. The spiritual reign or authority of God. So what does that mean? Dictionary.com got it pretty close. So therefore, this morning, I want to investigate what is that? And what does that look like? Psalm 47 verse 8 says these words to us. God reigns over the nation. God, over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. So we're beginning to get a picture of God's kingdom. Psalm 9 says these words. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, you have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers he does not ignore the cries of the afflicted beginning to flesh out what this kingdom looks like. Another psalm, Psalm 146, verse 10, says this, The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Now there are a number of verses that we could go to in the entirety of Scripture to, to say and to flesh out what it looks like for God to show us His kingdom. But what we can glean from these few verses that I read here just now is that the Lord currently, today, right now, sits enthroned in heaven and he reigns over all nations, over the entirety of the universe. And so if we use a very fundamental definition of the spiritual reign of God and his authority and or the dictionary.com, the boundaries of a king or a queen, we've established that God is above the boundaries. God is spiritually reigning over all things. And so God's kingdom is over all things, the entirety of the universe. What is God's kingdom? God's kingdom has no boundaries. It has no borders because he is that kind of God. He is that big. And so his kingdom is not some kingdom in the future that we're crossing our fingers and hoping for. His kingdom is here and now, today. It exists right now. So we set that foundation as the very principle upon which we make this petition that the Lord's kingdom would come. He is the one that reigns over the kings. He is the king of kings. He reigns over the lords, for he is the Lord of lords. Knowing this is true, then, according to the definition of this kingdom, we don't have to hope that the Lord's kingdom would come in the future. We know that exists here and now. But we often have this idea, don't we, when we pray in the Lord's prayer, may your kingdom come. We think that we are expecting the kingdom to arrive sometime in the future. Because our English language has this future tense and we think, well, if we're asking that it would come, it means it hasn't quite arrived yet and we're hoping that it does come sometime quickly. Right? Isn't that the sense, our knee-jerk reaction? We have the sense that the, the world has gone so far off the rails that we have to have some other kind of kingdom come in just so that we can survive and be okay. So we pray each and every week, 
Lord, send your, kingdom come, send your kingdom to come right now because this world is messed up and we need a different kind of kingdom to come in. Is that what we're praying for when we pray, may your kingdom come? Or that we were hoping that the Lord would just whisk us away and forget about this place? Is that what we're praying for? I'm going to put before you that no, that's not what we're praying for. Because we've established that his kingdom is already here. The Lord Jesus has ushered his kingdom in. He has told us that in all of the Gospels, that his kingdom is present because he is the kingdom and he reigns over the kingdom. So what are we asking for? What are we asking the Lord for to say, may your kingdom come? When we pray, may your kingdom come, we are asking that the things which define the Lord's kingdom would be what defines our kingdom. Would the kingdom that you have already established, Lord God, would that be our kingdom today? Not some other kingdom that we want or hope for or desire, but may your kingdom, the kind of kingdom that you've established, may that be our kingdom. May that be the kind of people that we are. May we be known by that kingdom, much like we understand the borders of a country and its cultures. We are asking that the Lord's kingdom would define us and give us those borders and cultures and customs. That his kingdom would come and would be known and made known in our lives. That we would reflect that kind of God, that kind of kingdom. That we would be known, just as we know someone from another country, that when someone knows us, they know Jesus. Because we're defined by that kingdom. So what are those things? What are those things that define God's kingdom? That when we say, okay, that person definitely is a citizen of the kingdom of God because they speak German or Austrian, they speak the Lord's language. They speak and know him and reflect him in all things. Now, we could say tons and tons and tons of things about the kingdom of God. There's many, many books written about the kingdom of God. So this morning, I am not going to be able to identify and exegete all of those things. This morning, we're going to look at two of those things using Luke chapter 6. And we're going to talk about these couple of things out of the sermon in which we call the Beatitudes, which we read a portion of that in Luke 6. Those two things that we're going to talk about, the characteristics of God's kingdom for us this morning, the two things are one is poverty, two is humility. John Calvin has famously said that the task of the Christian is to make the invisible kingdom visible. To make the invisible kingdom visible. That's the task of the Christian. These are truly inspiring words but also a really difficult task. Maybe even perhaps a dangerous task. We accomplish that task by making the kingdom that's invisible, visible in every area of our lives. We accomplish the task of making the invisible kingdom visible by us living out the kingdom of God. By living out what the Lord Jesus would have us be and do in our marriages, in our families, in our work, 
in our relationships and all we do in our schoolwork is that we are to reflect and make known the kingdom of God. So what exactly does that look like? How do I do that? What difference does this make for me this afternoon or, or tomorrow when I go back to work or school or, or life? And the Beatitudes, as I've said, this sermon that Jesus preached on this very subject, the kingdom of God, that's the topic of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes is that, hey, this is a great deal of insight into what the kingdom of God looks like. So here in Luke 6, we have just a bit of that message that Jesus is providing to us in the Beatitudes. But in this short bit of scripture, we're able to walk away with a great deal of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so let's look at these two things, poverty and humility. The very first thing about the kingdom of God is poverty. So what immediately comes to your mind when I say that? Money, right? That's what comes to my mind when I think about it. You say, that can't be. That, that, that can't be. Being, being poor is, is not the ideal that, that, that can't be what you're saying, Ryan. It's, it's not a bad thing to have money or financial success or wealth, right? Correct. You were right. The first thing about the kingdom of God, however, is poverty. So what do I mean by that? The very first thing that everyone should be able to point out about a person in the kingdom of God is their poverty. The confusion is still fogging your brain, then I think we're on the right track. The intentionality was for us to see the condition that we find ourselves in here this morning. We quickly jump to the conclusion of this, right? That to be poor in spirit means that we have to be poor. That being wealthy is somehow evil or wrong or all of these things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that to be poor without money is somehow elevated, nor am I saying that to be rich is somehow elevated. I'm saying we need to look at what actually it means to be poor in spirit or to be, in a sense, of poverty. To be poor in spirit somehow means to be bankrupt. But we have a problem with that, don't we? Because we desperately want to be successful. We desperately want people to respect us. We desperately want people to say he or she's got it all figured out and they're autonomous and they're great and they're wonderful. We want to be told how incredible we are and what we're doing is amazing. We want to be patted on the back and given the participation trophy. Even more so than that, we are told that to be financially wealthy is the first and foremost fruit of success. We even say that when we receive a good deal of money, the Lord has blessed me. That's not to say that he has not blessed those without money. But that's what we imply. That those who don't have money are not blessed. And those with money are that's not what it means to be poor in spirit, nor to be in poverty. The kind of poverty that defines a person of the kingdom of God is the person who understands true poverty. And it really has nothing to do with finances. It really has nothing to do with money. 
But I wanted our brains to go there because that's how quickly we go to that particular part of our lives. Our world tells us that we're self-reliant. Our world tells us that we're to strive for autonomy. Our world tells us that we're supposed to be independent and strong and mighty. Just believe in yourself and you can accomplish anything. Be self-reliant. And the world is yours for the taking. What we must understand about the kingdom of God is that the very foundation of the kingdom lies in the fact that we are not able to rely on ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much money we make or how little money we make, and we can't save anyone else either, no matter how hard we try or how much money we make. What we must understand in our poverty is that we are bankrupt. We have credit card debt that we cannot pay in our sin and misery. We're not able to get out of the hole of the debt that we have placed upon ourselves. What the gospel says to us when we come to this realization is that Jesus has removed the debt. He has paid off the credit cards. He has paid off the creditors of sin and death and hell through his life, death, and resurrection. He has removed the record of bad credit and restored us to himself. Our poverty is understanding not our financial position, but rather our spiritual position. What is our spiritual portfolio? Our spiritual portfolio owes everything to Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us. We have nothing without him. If you ever go to Chicago on a family vacation, which you all should do, um, and if you've never been there, make plans quickly. And when you go, there are a few things that you have to do. One is that you have to eat at Lou's. I just had a conversation with somebody yesterday who's going there this week, and um, he said, should I eat at this place? And I said, absolutely, 100%. Lou Malnati's is the best pizza in Chicago. If you go to Chicago, you have to go there, just, just so you know. The second thing that you need to do is that you need to go to the Art Institute of Chicago. You just have to go there. That's one of the things that every person should do because it's a beautiful and wonderful place. The third thing that you should do is they kind of go hand in hand, but as you walk, you really can't walk, but maybe you can drive from the Art Institute. You drive down south and you drive along the lake and you can see the beautiful Lake Michigan and all of the glory that it has. And you'll find yourself relatively quickly at another museum called the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. A wonderful place that I remember going there when our boys were small and they would love it. There's a massive, massive train exhibit of model trains. It's really, really great. It's a fascinating museum that everyone should go to at least once in their life, and it's a jewel of the, Chicago, the city of Chicago. I was reading about the museum this week, and that's how it spurred me to this illustration. I was reading about the museum this week, and there's a fascinating bit about this science and industry museum of Chicago that I didn't know. Unlike every other museum as far as this particular article can say, is that to enter into the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry... There's only one entrance. If you go to the Art Institute, there are multiple entrances. There are multiple entrances into this beautiful place of art and wonder and grandeur. 
But to enter into the Museum of Science and Industry, you can only go one place in the front door. You can only enter through that one door. There's only one way to enter into the museum and see this really cool model train exhibit. This is what poverty is for the citizens of the kingdom of God. Without the understanding that the only entrance into the kingdom of God is through the one entrance of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on my behalf, we do not understand what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. If somehow we think we've poured into our account all kinds of good deeds and and good actions and good thoughts and good emotions, and that somehow we have something to add to our account, then we don't understand what it means to be poor in spirit, to be in poverty, to understand that the only thing I have is Jesus Christ. Every citizen of the kingdom knows the financial state of their spirituality without Christ, and that is nothing. Your bank account is zero without Christ. This is where the prayer begins to build upon itself. We pray our Father. We have a Father who adopts us into his family. We were once far away, aliens and enemies of the Lord God. And this God in heaven says to you and to me, you are now my son and my daughter and I bring you to myself and now you are heirs of the kingdom. You have everything that Jesus has because you are my child. You are my children. This father now says you are mine and we now pray to that same father. May your kingdom come. May, may your family be our family and may, what, and may who you are be who we are. We have a Father who established holiness in our life. And now we ask that his kingdom would come. The kind of kingdom that has us on our knees and says, my worth, my value is not in myself or what I've done or not done. My worth and my value is in what Jesus has done for me. To be poor in spirit means to understand our need for Jesus Christ. Once we recognize that our accounts have been rectified and made right again by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then something in our lives has to change. If we recognize that we were weighed down in debt and credit cards and bankruptcy, and and Jesus then enters into our lives and removes that debt, takes the credit cards away, and restores us back to life and vitality, something in our lives must change. We have to understand a fundamental shift We can no longer be arrogant. We can no longer be prideful. We can no longer be condescending. Entitled. Mean-spirited. Judgmental. Because a citizen of the kingdom of God recognizes that the only way that they are in the kingdom is because they were once weighed down under this mountain of death. And the Lord has restored them through what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection. The citizen of the kingdom of God understands that the posture of humility is what defines a citizen of the kingdom of God. We recognize someone from another country by the language that they speak. 
pretty sure I could figure out German, someone speaking German relatively quickly. Russian, maybe a little bit harder, because it sounds kind of like other Middle European languages. But we can get there pretty quickly. Italian, Spanish are pretty similar, but we'll get there pretty quickly. How do you know when someone's a citizen of the kingdom of God? It's that they're humble. Because they understand their poverty. We must be the first to embrace and understand this humility. Yet how often are we quick to judge? How often are we quick to judge because the other person doesn't vote the way that I vote? Doesn't approach the world with the same worldview exactly as mine, and so they must not be valuable. How often we're quick to judge rather than quick to embrace. How often are we quick to conclude that my way is better than your way? And we're sure to let them know. So when Scripture tells us that we are to be a comfort to the poor and to the healing and to the sick, yes, it means to the poor and the hurting and the sick. But it also means to those who are spiritually hurting, poor, and sick. And the only way that we can do that is if we understand what's been accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. And that's by Him giving us grace. And that's by us understanding and having a a posture of humility because we understand what Jesus has done for us. It's, it's, It's not casting blame or judgment on our neighbor. This is what Jesus was getting at in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. This is how you live in this world. Jesus said that after he was finished speaking to the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, he says these words, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. It's to humble ourselves. To have a posture of humility. To understand and to love our neighbors because we understand how much God first loved us. The hard question that I have for all of us, and yes, frankly for myself as well, is this. As much as we're able to recognize someone from another country, from Russia or Italy or Morocco? Do people recognize us as citizens of the kingdom of God? Do they recognize me, not just because I have a title, but because of who I am, my poverty and my humility? And they say, I know Ryan is a citizen of the kingdom of God because of his humility? And how he cares for me? Are the traditions, the things that we do, are we characterized by these things? Are we the people who understand our poverty without Jesus? Are we easily recognizable as humble and and gracious? Who know on a deep level just how great and amazing the grace of Jesus is on our behalf? So when we pray, may your kingdom come, 
we're praying that we would be those kind of people. When we pray, may your kingdom come, we pray to God, make us humble. May we understand our poverty. May your kingdom be our kingdom. May we reflect that humility and that grace and that love that you've shown us. Bring that kingdom to me. Bring that kingdom to us. For this is who we want to be. May your kingdom come. Are we characterized by those kind of people? Are we easily recognizable as humble and gracious? When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying that we would be those kind of people. That we would manifest and reflect the kingdom of God in our own lives each and every day. Not some day in the future, today. Not tomorrow, right now. Not next week when it's easier, but today when it may be difficult. We don't pray that we would be whisked away into heaven somewhere. But the Lord would allow us to engage our world, our state, our city with grace and humility. So we live in this world. And we celebrate what Jesus has done in our lives. And we pray that we would be that kind of people. The people who are poor in spirit and people that are humble and people that love because we were first loved. And so, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come in our lives today. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.